Welcome to our Transgender School podcast. We're here to talk about diverse transgender identities and experiences so that we can all be better allies and advocates. We'll also discuss current events, welcome guests, and share actions you can take to support trans people. I'm Bridget, and my daughter Jackie came out as a transgender woman about four years ago when she was 19 years old. I was totally unprepared, but I have learned a lot since then. And now Jackie and I are passionate about sharing what we've learned. When I came to terms with being trans, I realized that I absolutely needed to transition, but coming out was very stressful. Now that a few years have passed, things have gotten somewhat easier, and I want to help other trans people navigate their own unique experiences. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 23 of the Transgender School podcast. We have very important guests with us today who I'm very excited and honored to have with us. We are here to talk about mental health, mental health support. And I just want to start out by saying that there is such a great need for folks who specialize in therapy and, and mental health support for the LGBTQIA plus population. And that is going to be our topic today. And we have two experts, very well-trained experts on the subject. And I'm so grateful to both of them for being here. And I'm, I'm going to turn it over to them to introduce themselves because they will do a much better job. I would be just reading off a long list of what sound like incredibly impressive and amazing credentials to me, but they can actually speak to what it all means. But before we do that, Jackie, hi, good morning. <laughs> morning, everyone. Thanks for being here with us. Yeah, Jackie, thanks for being here. And we are so honored and thankful and grateful again to welcome you, Rebex and Abba. So whoever would like to start first and just do a little intro to yourself and then turn it over and, and we'll hear from, from both of you. Okay, I guess I'll go. Um, Thank you. Rebex Clark Monet. I was a college professor for most of my career, but recently went back to school to become a therapist, specializing in trauma and LGBTQIA plus affirmative therapy. And yeah, what, uh, my pronouns are they, them. I'm also recently transitioned. So I've been on testosterone for a year. So I can also speak to transitioning later in life, which is actually happening more and more, which is exciting. Hi, everyone. Uh, I'm Abba Horthy. They, them pronouns. I was born in Europe. I lived a little bit in the DR and then moved here 10 years ago. My pronouns are they, them. And I specialize in LGBTQI affirmative therapy, as well as trauma, complex trauma, and chronic illness and terminal illness. And we work with families as well and kids of trans people. And you two have a practice together, is that correct? Yes, yeah, okay. should, should I say our, our website? Please, please. com. So our two last names, Horthy Mane Therapy. And we will put that in the show notes as well. So, and any other links that you two would like to share, we'll put into the show notes. So let's start with what does LGBTQIA plus affirmative therapy mean? Okay, I can jump in. Um, so we, both of us, Abba and I, were very lucky that we got to be trained at one of the few programs that has an LGBT affirmative track. So this is Antioch University in Los Angeles. So we literally specialize in LGBT affirmative therapy. And one thing both of us are going to try to make clear is a lot of times therapists will say they're LGBT plus affirmative, and they mean they're not going to throw you out of their office 
if you come in as gay, <laughs> but that doesn't mean they have a specialized training. So we've been specialized to train in things like gender dysphoria, internalized homophobia, internalized transphobia, internalized biphobia, as well as dealing with external discrimination and building resilience around that. We're also highly trained in knowing all of the social as well as potential medical interventions and how to help clients navigate those as well, trans clients. And um, yeah, we're trained in letter writing and how to not gatekeep, but just check for informed consent around a surgery of any kind, which is really important because I will say I'm a therapist who writes letters for others, but for my own top surgery, I have to get a letter and there's nothing I hate more in the world than this process. It feels so demeaning. But so I try to to share that with others that I, we're not checking if you're trans. We are checking if you have support for a surgery. Alba, what would you add to that? So you mentioned the LGBTQIA plus affirmative. So a lot of people are gay affirmative, but they put all the letters in there. And that makes us clients or say, um, Think that okay, we're gonna be safe with them. It's gonna be a safe place and space. And then when you're there, you have this awkward moment of I talk to someone who does uh, shows, and that person looked at me and was like, "Okay, you're male," and I'm like, "No, I'm non-binary." And that person was like, "No, you're male." And this person works with the queer community. I haven't talked to that person again, but uh, they do trainings and they are, uh, yeah, highly accomplished in our field, but uh, only for gay men usually. So uh, dismissing our own humanity is really important to look out for. So just really be cautious when you see the letters and ask your therapist or potential therapist, like, have they worked with trans people before? Have they done letters before? What is your knowledge in our, on our community? That's what I would add. Thank you so much. I think that's such an important point. And could you, for our audience who might not be as familiar with some of these concepts, just share at a more basic level, like what it means to use an informed consent model when it comes to hormones and therapy versus having to get letters from providers and how that plays out and how that how that impacts the trans people who are seeking care? Yeah, so the current model in the United States, and, and maybe it will shift, but if you want any kind of a surgical gender-affirming therapy, you have to provide a letter from a therapist or a psychiatrist. Presumably, well, if you want to use insurance, they have to diagnose you with gender dysphoria and make a case that is medically necessary. It's a medical necessity to transition surgically in order for gender dysphoria to be reduced. Now, those of us who are in the field do not use a gender dysphoria model. Like I would support somebody who wants to medically transition to achieve gender euphoria because they would love it, not because they're dying in their own body. And so this is a model we have to use with the DSM to go along with insurance companies. But informed consent means we believe you. Like a trained therapist in the trans field right now, if you come in and you say, I'm non-binary or I'm binary trans, I want to be or I am this other gender, we're not going to say like, what are you wearing? How It used to be like if you were wanted to transition to male and you look too feminine, 
they would mark it down. It's like, you are not properly, you know, you're not properly this other thing or you're not going to pass. It's so gross and it's such a broken model. And thank God for the most part, everyone trained today does not come from that perspective. It means we believe our clients and we work with them to achieve what feels the most affirming to the actual identity. So an informed consent means we're going to check Have you talked to your surgeon about what you want? Do you have aftercare set up? If the answer is no, it doesn't mean we don't write a letter. It means how can we help you strategize to get aftercare set up? What are some maybe supports we can put for you to support you through a major surgery? So in no way, we try to get rid of the gatekeeping where you do not have to prove to us that you're trans or non-binary, only that we can support you to have a successful outcome of a surgery. And what that means is we also don't rule out, you know, it used to be like, what if I'm schizophrenic? Can I do, you know, what if I've been diagnosed with these things? Can I, what if I have a multiple or DID, dissociative identity disorder, and not all of my alters are trans? That doesn't rule you out still, right? It means we would go and get buy-in from other alters, Uh, When everybody seems like they're on board and there's a a plan in place to give informed consent, then we go through with it. So it's more about, it's not about yes or no. It's more about how can we best support trans and non-binary clients to get the care that they need. And actually seeing them as who they are, not thinking, okay, this person presents this way and I'm going to just mark it down that, well, they should not have top surgery because they don't pass necessarily. And oh, letter writing. So unfortunately, there are some places and for usually for bottom surgeries, you need two letters. And one of those letters needs to usually be from a doctorate. And the other one can be a master's therapist or again, a doctorate therapist. But here's the gatekeeping again. Yes, there is an issue where we talk about how trans people might might want to detransition and they want to change whatever decision they made, but that's usually not true at all. Usually for kids, if they're affirmed at a younger age, you help them achieve self-love and self-compassion and self-care. And with that, you let your child be who they are and not cause traumatic moments for the child where they didn't get to have uh, hormone blockers and they had to fight that gender dysphoria and that sometimes leads to suicidality and severe depression. So letter writing, I know I went on a tangent with that, but trust your client and really affirm your client for who they are and not have your basic misconceptions of toxic negativity, uh, internalized shame, toxic biphobia, transphobia, queerphobia, anything like that should be worked out before you work with your community. So if we all have those, even if they're small, but if we don't act and don't do anything to tackle that, then we're causing harm for our clients and not doing anything when you have a trans or non-binary child is actually harmful for your child. This is really important. This is what I wanted to add. 
if there's therapists listening, I know this is primarily targeted at families, but if there are therapists out there say, I want to support, how do I do that? Get training, right? Mm-hmm. So there's, it's also, we love to say, well, just refer out if you're not competent, but it comes to the place of if you're trans and you finally got the courage up to go to a therapist and get help and they say, I can't work with you. That is so disconfirming. So do the training, go get trainings. There's amazing trainings online. Um, go do, get the education to develop the competency to work with the client who had the courage to come to you. And there are, I think we were talking about before, not a lot of training in uh, programs directly, right? Especially with uh, marriage and family counseling. We were lucky that we had trans professors who taught our, you know, GEs. So they always brought in this perspective, but you know, yeah, not everyone's going to, going to have a clear perspective. And that means you have to do continuing education. The other thing about the trans community is it's always evolving. So what I learned in grad school in five years may not be the thing we're doing. I was looking at uh, stuff from 2016 where we were dead naming people, right? And that's something that's changed in the community. So it's also something we have to keep up with. We got to keep up with what is the best model of care that we now know because we have more information. And you're saying something important. There is no just one training that will make you trans affirmative and you're done. And okay, I can work with trans people now. You have to train yourself. You have to know, even if you're not binding in trans, you need to know what's going on in the world. What laws are being prohibited from me getting the surgery that I need? You need to know these basic things before working with your client. Because if you don't, again, that can cause harm. I so appreciate everything you just shared. And I I just, what it's reminding me is why it's so important for me to continue to do what I've been doing with new parents. Parents whose kids newly came out will often say to me, and I, I do intake for a support group and I'm in a lot of groups and also just my friends are like, oh, my friend's kid came out. Can I send them to you? So every week I'm talking to parents and very often they'll say, oh, well, we have a good therapist and I have to be very, very firm and say, nope, nope, your therapist might be great. Jackie had a great therapist earlier in her life, right? Who, but yeah, who but, was also a cis guy. Well, we let's not, let's not, I probably should No, 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 no but that's what was, I'm saying. Is right, right. But he was great, but it was like, right. And I was like, oh, go back to your, so I don't want to put down, you know, their wonderful therapists who can help people with a wide range of, you know, of situations and challenges. But I want to say to parents, you have got to have a therapist who has the kind of training that Rebecca and Abba are talking about. It could be life or death. I don't want to minimize that. Very well me. I, I know they've already said this, but I want to reinforce it because I've heard it from parents that well-meaning therapists who claim to be LGBTQIA plus affirming will say something to a child questioning their, as the, as Rebecca and Abba are talking about, their knowing of who they are and w- w- even the slightest tone or questioning could have devastating consequences. So we cannot overstate the importance and the significance of what we're talking about today. And I just want to reinforce that as a parent in the parent communities, please take this seriously, parents. And also for parents, you need therapy. I needed therapy. We don't understand. I was clueless. Jackie was telling me, you are transphobic mom. And I felt insulted. I was like, no, I'm an ally and I'm this. And I'm, I was absolutely transphobic. I was terrified. I was uneducated. I was uninformed. I was, I said all the wrong things to Jackie. 
We've talked about that before. Parents, you need therapy. You need people like Abba and Rebecca just as much as your kids do or your other family members or, and siblings might because we are just starting to begin to develop an understanding of the various multifaceted experience of gender identity. So I don't want us to understate the importance of that. I have some things to say to that, but I, I'm curious, Jackie, if you would be there's anything you feel comfortable sharing of what it's like to have a well-meaning therapist who isn't. That was actually, yeah, that's what I was going to say. I'm really curious to hear what you have to add as well. But the one thing I would contribute is that I, I experienced this firsthand. I mean, I, the first person who really believed me fully and not just believed me, but offered to work with me to help me transition and to support me through that process and kind of made that feel real was my therapist. And I don't think it's a coincidence that this therapist is also another trans person. And and I think that there's a lot of value in that. And I would just, you know, I want to thank you both for being providers who are in that space, who are are helping trans people, because I I really experienced that firsthand. And and I would love to hear more about what that's like for you to be in that space, kind of straddling that line between this establishment that has such a terrible record of mistreating and gatekeeping and then trying to make that work for trans people and trying to trying to undo and trying to um I guess change that legacy. One of the things I'm not sure I highlighted when we talked about LGBT affirmative therapy is that it's affirmative, right? So whenever somebody uh, says they're trans, the first thing that the society thinks of is what's gonna happen to you, right? And then the laws and the the transphobia and everything else. But an affirmative therapy is actively celebratory. It's like, oh my God, congratulations of telling me who you are. Congratulations of, of knowing this. We are so excited for you. We're so excited for your journey. And here's all of the amazing things that, you know, coming to terms with, with yourself is going to provide for you. Because there's a lot of negativity out there that we don't talk about gender euphoria. We don't talk about that connection that comes in when you're uh, congruent with yourself, the joy that comes from that, the shift. We're always just thinking about the negativity of the hardships of being trans and non-binary. And so a real affirmative therapist is excited for their clients. It's like, I am so grateful I get to be part of this journey with you. And this is so exciting. And I can't wait to see what's going to happen. So to Bridget's point, uh, parents do transition as well. You're transitioning with your child if you want to affirm your child. But that doesn't mean that you should take that out on your child because it can have severe impacts of self-harm and depression because the parent can't deal with their child coming out. So what we would suggest is that the parents also go to therapy separately from the child, deal with the internalized transphobia that they have or internalized non-binary phobia, whatever it is, and tackle that and work that out so you can be healing for your child and not cause more damage. Also, if you wait till they're 18, you usually are causing magnitude of damage that is sometimes not even reversible because you did the damage to your child already and that's it and we can work with transparency and we're not going to judge you for having those icky feelings for for saying whatever is on your mind what you were taught what what this world is about apparently from you but 
just be affirming with your kid by getting the help that you need. I had a client, their parent just uh, put them in therapy and the client shows up and they're like, what's happening? Who are you? And I was shocked. I was shocked because the parent told me that the kid knew about getting into therapy and all that. But turns out the kid didn't. And then we had to talk about how shitty that feels from mom that mom just did this for you with you. And then later on, it turned out that the child had nothing wrong with them. There wasn't anything bad. The, the negative things that came was the parents lack of uh, intrigue for their trans child, the lack of joy for your trans kid. And again, that caused them harm. But then we were able to talk with the parents and they got the help they needed to help their own child better. So years of trauma can happen uh, if you're with the wrong therapist because you don't know what kind of shitty things they they will say to you they will not affirm you they will tackle you they they will tell you that you're not real you're not as who you think you are oh you're, you're gonna change and if it changes beautiful because with a lot of trans and non-binary people uh our sexuality sometimes shifts after a while and that's normal and that's normal even in the cis community, but we don't talk about these things. And that's that's why it's a freakish thing, but it's really just normal. And being affirmative is normalizing and understanding and celebrating who you are while strategizing and how to survive in this world that we live in. Every parent of any child has an imagination of who their kid's going to be, right? So we... We have dreams for our kids and sometimes we project ourselves and our dreams onto these kids. So whether they're, whatever they are, there's often a grief when our child does not show up as who we had projected them to be. And that's going to be for all parents of all kinds of kids, but especially, you know, when a kid is trans and we had imagined, I'll just, you know, if mom is watching this, hi mom, but my mom has shared with me, she goes, I just don't feel like I feel like we're not connecting anymore. I was like, what are you talking about? We talk more than, than ever. And I really, she was identifying with me in a way that she didn't feel she could identify anymore because our genders didn't match the way she used to think they did. So there was a loss for her. Whereas to me, I'm the same, literally the same person as I've always been. I didn't, I didn't actually experience a transition myself because I'm me uh, consistently throughout. And so there's a loss for my mom. There's a loss for parents. There's a grief there. And I super appreciate it when parents work that grief out with therapists, even if their adult child's a therapist, to do some of that that work of, yeah, you had a dream, you had a vision, and it's going to be different. And um, it's okay to be sad about that. But don't make the kid carry that, even if they're adults, because that's a lot to carry the disappointment of your parents. Yeah. And I... Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Alba. You reminded me of something, Rebecca, that um, a lot of children don't get to hear their parents say, I will love you no matter what happens. I will love you for being you. If you can say that to your child and really just 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 go into their bedroom and and just tell them, I will love you no matter what you do. I love you for who you are. And there's nothing that you can do that changes that. And Parents don't realize how much that means. And parents don't realize how much that means for a queer child. 
because uh, growing up queer, I was like, okay, I'm I'm gonna be shunned. Uh, my family will hate me. Uh, I will have no one, and I should just kill myself. And it was a really dark place. But if I just heard that at the right time, that I will be loved, even though I am different or I am unique and special. And I heard that later on in my life, but that was my adult life. I wish I had that as a child. So if you're a parent watching this, just tell your child that you will love them no matter what they do, or just be kind to your child. That's it. And I'm, I'm so curious to get into this issue of like how this gender policing by parents often happens, because I think some parents might think of it as oh, well, if my child came to me and said they're trans, of course I would support them or something like that. But I think there's a lot of subtle things that parents do without necessarily, like when I, when I think about my own life, for example, I was never told you can't be trans. I don't think you or dad had a, I don't think my mom or dad had a concept of like, we don't want our kid to be trans. But I think there were these really subtle ways in which the way I presented and, and the way I engaged with the world were police. Like I wanted to grow my hair out, but I wasn't allowed to. I wanted to get my ears pierced, but I wasn't allowed to. If I, I had to play certain sports and when I did well at those sports and when I worked out a lot and when I was in high school and I got kind of muscular, my dad would say, you look good. And, the, you know, those kinds of things. And I think it's interesting to think about how parents might not think of themselves as being transphobic or as policing their kid's gender or not being accepting. But there's these, like you said, that there's this idea you have of who your kid is supposed to be. And you maybe nudge your kid in that direction in ways that you might not realize. And I, I also think it's interesting to think about how that plays into the ages at which we come out. I mean, I can't imagine myself having come out before I was 18 and left the house and started like, realizing things for myself. And I, you know, if I didn't have the experience I had with moving to San Francisco and meeting other trans people, I might still be in the closet today for all I know. So I think that that's a very interesting dynamic of it as well. And would, would love to hear your thoughts. Threw a lot out there, but would love to hear your thoughts on any of that. And the tough thing is, is we start gendering infants the second they're born, right? Mm -hmm. so they've done a study where they take a baby and they hand it to people and they say, this is a girl. And they go, oh, she's so beautiful and so delicate. Look how small she is. They hand the same baby to another person and say, this is a boy. They're like, oh, look at this. Look at this strong, strappy lad. Oh, he's going to be a lady killer, right? So we're already heterosexualizing, uh, gendering our kids. The way we hold them from the first second they're born, we hold our kids differently. And yeah, what would it be? So like, Psychology has a theory that, um, you know, we definitely need to be mirrored by our parents. Like the, it's like the peekaboo, but also we want to see our parents see us and love us. And what we don't realize is, you know, queer children and trans babies, there's a theory that it's already there and we see ourselves not being mirrored back. So the second that if I was born non-binary or I was born, you know, I was I was male or non-binary from birth but I was perceived female, then the second I was held as female, I was being disconfirmed. And that's a trauma even of the most loving parents can inflict on their children of the nobody sees me and I don't know why. We don't have the words yet. We just know like I'm not whatever this is. Yeah, I definitely grew up feeling like a, a failed woman. I was, and my mom literally, when I was a teenager, I went out of town for a school trip. She painted my room pink. 
and bought like a pink comforter. And I came home to this room going, what is this? Because I wore too much black and I seemed too masculine. And they, and, and she just wanted me to soften up it. It's perpetual and it's subtle or sometimes it's overt. Even with my brother, his, his son, when he was born, loved to play with cars, but he also loved to play with dolls. And of course, parents take out the doll or give a, elaborate praise. I think, Jackie, what you were saying about like, look at you playing sports. Like, it's not even have to be negative. It could just be what things get me praise, right? And, and it's so, like, that doesn't make me feel good, but it makes you feel good. So I guess it should make me feel good, right? So right. something's and if wrong it doesn't, with me. You're like, what? There's something wrong. And I don't, don't know what it is. As somebody who hasn't transitioned until I'm in my 40s, I can tell you that I've spent most of my life thinking, I'm just really bad at being a girl. Everyone else got the handbook on being a woman and I didn't, I don't get it. I don't get it at all. And so I studied it and I, Bridget may remember me presenting as this. I went hyper femme when I hit 40. I was like, you know what? I'm going to be the best woman I can be and figure this thing out. So I went hyper femme. I grew my hair out. I wore makeup. I wore heels. I tried to do all the things and I was so miserable. And that was the moment I gave myself permission to stop trying because society will say, you're just not good at being a girl and that's why you're unhappy or you're just not pretty or all these things. And it was like, okay, I was a pretty girl and I've never been more miserable. And so, yeah, it's not enough to, to compliment. Like if you can compliment your kids on things other than look how beautiful you are or look how strong you are and have more things like, you know, that was really smart. Or did you enjoy doing that? Right. Those are really helpful, really helpful comments. I just want to say as the only cisgender person in the group, I think it's so important for cisgender people to hear your experiences. And I I thank you for sharing them because I'm not even listening as a parent now. I'm listening as a cisgender person who's like, wow, I don't. And, And I think it's so important for us to listen and really listen because what you're sharing with us we don't know these things. We assume that our experience is other people's experience, right? Because we have that congruence. And that's why when Jackie came out to me and why almost every single parent I talk to when their kid has just come out is in denial. It's like, no, but they always presented this way. And I really want those parents, those family members, everybody, teachers, every freaking buddy on the earth to hear you that like, we just don't get it if it's not our experience. And that doesn't give us the right to say it's not real. And to challenge it in any way, shape or form, just because it's not our experience. And like every parent I talk to, well, I'm not like this. If you come to me and you're a parent, I'm going to be super empathetic. I promise. And because I've been there, I know, but now I get it. Like when Jackie came out, I really pushed back because of all the things she just said, like she played sports and she had girlfriends. And, you know, I thought that she, she played baseball, you know, it was like so freaking ridiculously stereotypical you know she was into cars and driving fast and was very assertive and you know all the things and so I just could not I couldn't I was in denial and so many all the parents like um, like 99% I'm not even come and say similar things like but my kid presented this way and they did these things and it's like they were mirroring they were doing what you're talking about Rebecca but they were just trying to be who you 
were telling them that they were supposed to be. They never had the space. Like parents say to me, I know I'm kind of going off in different directions, but this is important too to me. Parents will say to me, oh, you're such a good parent. You're so affirming. You're such a great mom to Jackie. And it's like, no, no, let me tell you about what I did at first. I'm more interested in telling people the trauma that I caused her, the pain that I caused her, the point to where I could have destroyed our relationship if she hadn't been as forgiving a person as she is and completely lost her in my life because I did these things, right? Because I didn't understand. I didn't get it. I needed therapy. I needed education big time. And I really want people to hear that. You've got to believe people when they tell you who they are, just because you don't understand it, because you saw them filling some role that they were forced to fit into. It doesn't make it not real. So- Sorry, I had to say that. I feel very passionate about it. No, it's great. Like it could start with letting your child pick out the first toy and really looking through the whole store, not just the boy section and the girl section and the in-between, but everything and let them have Barbies if they want. Like I had Barbies and I pulled it off and this in this country where I'm like, oh, I'm just having the Barbies to have uh, girlfriends for my my male action dolls, you know, I had that. And that's how I survived as a little kid. Um, But if you just like let them have the toy that they want and start playing with that. Also, I wanted to mention, I was three years old when my stepfather told my mom that he will not raise a little F.A.G. Now that got so ingrained in me that I killed off that, that self of me. For a good 15, almost 20 years. And that was just the first thing. But growing up in an environment like that, and then having schoolmates who are making fun of you for being queer, different, a sissy, liking colors. I, I like feminine things and masculine things. And that is okay. And that should have been okay when I was three. But no, I had to kill that part off of me. So What I'm saying is don't gender your child. Don't expect them to get married, have kids. And, you know, like that's the way it should be based on your perception, what we hear from the media. But it's okay to be different. It's okay that your child has a different route. Support them on it and then push them, push them to be great, push them to smile, push them to really search and find who they are. And not not let them become depressed because you think that your child should be a certain way. We have to work those things out uh, if we're parents. That it's something that our par- that probably their parents ingrained in their heads that there's a male and a female. But that's Darwinism. Like we kind of like looked into Darwinism and we're like, okay, we like gender like male and female and and yes uh people of color are different no no but this is where we get it from there's a basis of it this is the history we're looking at something that's really really old was done by one guy and his thoughts and we're suffering from it and 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 it's beautiful to be different genders it's beautiful to be non-stitched it's beautiful to be cis And don't expect anyone in your life to ask you to be someone else. And uh, you mentioned something about mirroring. Mirroring is important for your child. And uh, even if your queer child has not grown up in an affirming way, 
So what I'm trying to say is that uh, kids don't get married usually when they're queer. And that's why us queer people usually have like a second adolescence where we get to rage out, party, all that, because we didn't get to have that experience because it was taken from us. We had to self, there's self-parenting from the lack of mirroring. And you're grown up when you're a child and everyone tells you, oh, you're so mature. Oh, look at you. You're so smart. But that's usually high trauma. That's usually I'm not being mirrored by my parents. That's usually like my parents don't understand me and I can't face the fact that they might hate me for it. So I'll just think shitty things and thoughts about myself and I will push myself down and will heal that part off of me so I can be loved, so I can be protected by my parents. But parents, please just tell your child that you love them. And that really there's nothing that they can do. I want to draw on on something you're bringing up, which is the gender binary is rooted in white supremacy. and I know we're hearing this more and more, but as you were mentioning, Abba, with the, the social Darwinism, is there was this theory that, you know, evolution, when they went from, you know, asexual reproduction to sexual reproduction, therefore... Those of us who are very gender binary must be more advanced than those who are non-binary or androgynous. And this was very rife in the early 1800s. This affected uh, women's rights because they're like, no, you're going to destroy the white race if you get empowered. It's a story we've told to justify enslaving people, to justify stealing things. And it's a story. It's not a biological fact. It's not a, a thing. You know, it's a story that's tied into all of these systems of power. And I also wanted to address the thing I hear from a lot of parents that they're worried this is a fad. Everybody's doing it. And so, you know, and I've heard someone say, if you let kids be whatever they want, no one's going to pick you know, a narrow gender definition. It's like, yeah, right. That's <laughs> so, a bad thing. Why? Yeah. Like, right. It's like, so let's expand gender, gender. Let's let gender be a playground. That's, there's so many possibilities. If you look at gender over time, it's changed so much, right? In the 1800s, white masculinity was the dandy with a small waist and, and soft hands, right? And it was only after the slaves were freed that masculine, white masculinity is like, wait, we need to toughen up. And so they, they, promoted baseball and these kinds of things. It has changed according to social needs. There's nothing inherent about masculinity and femininity presenting in these ways. Yeah. So like as a therapist, I was worried, like if I become masculine, will I lose my loving, you know, nurturing, like mothering role that I do? And as I've been embodying masculinity, I realized masculinity doesn't have to be toxic. It can be containing it can be protecting it can be a strength that grounding strength that people can draw on and so these are socially constructed categories there is nothing inherently feminine about pink pink was a masculine color in the 40s and then capitalism went hmm how do we get people to buy all new baby clothes let's swap the colors right blue was gentle uh, blue was soft like the whatever so it was associated with girls red or pink was red so it was virility associated with uh, boys and people were just passing down baby clothes. So capitalism's like, we need to get people to buy stuff, new stuff. Let's swap it. And that's how it is. 
my ex-husband, when I was trying really hard to be a heterosexual woman, is from India. And when he came from India, they like all the colors. And people asked him what his favorite color was. And he said pink. And they said, "Does that makes you gay. And he says, I thought having sex with men made me gay. And he was very straight-faced about it and was beautiful and innocent. He's like, hmm, I didn't know liking a color could make me gay. That's really weird. So we just have such weird roles about gender like that are made up and socially decided upon. And if we actually let kids choose and none of them are choosing these toxic categories, maybe it's about the categories. I wanted to ask you, Abba, if it's okay to speak to when we were talking before we started recording, you said, you know, there's a lot of training. Thankfully, there's more and more training about how to be affirming as a therapist, but it's not necessarily BIPOC friendly. And I would love for you to speak to that. Yeah, there are lovely trainings on how to be queer affirmative or trans affirmative, non-binary affirmative, but it's usually taught by white people and usually their own privilege is not being seen by them. So the BIPOC experience just vanishes. It doesn't exist. Like there was an amazing interview that uh, we all saw a few days ago where we were educated on trans issues and all that. And there were really big, famous people there. But I missed one person of color there. Like, what about that? Like, what about the rest of humanity that is not white? And I I was upset by that basic thing that even if you're not having anyone on your show who is BIPOC, okay, but then talk about the experiences, talk about what, we go through what's happening and not shame it and just push it away because white supremacy again is built on capitalism. Like uh, we benefit, we profit from it. Like there are these gender reveal parties that create chaos and everywhere. And there shouldn't be such a thing as gender reveal parties unless your child is throwing it and they're like, Yes, this is my first year as a trans person. Yes, I'm happy. Yes, it's my first year after top surgery. Like those are the celebratory moments, not making your kid fit in clothes that they don't want to. And they're angry and they're crying when they're small. And you're like, oh, this kid has a tantrum. I don't know why. But if you really saw that that small child is not happy in a dress, and don't put that small child in a dress and they will be happy. Their life expectancy goes up and we get to have more trans people who are older. And this notion that transness and non-binaryness did not exist is idiotic. Uh, Shakespeare mentioned non-binary people. Historically, uh, we've always been there. It's just, We don't talk about it in school because we don't benefit or profit from trans people unless we hurt them. There's a a rich history of African, South and Central American, of different communities of color that had non-binary and trans figures exalted. Um, uh, Modern day Uganda in the past had a um, pretty clearly gay king at one point. And the thing is, is then... Western imperialism came in and said, no, you are not as evolved if you're not, you know, this very gendered from this version. 
And so what's playing out now in a lot of communities is, you know, I've seen in the African-American community say, like, we're just now getting respectable. So trans is not respectable then, that you're putting us back in this this old narrative. And so the transphobia within the Black community is going to be different than the transphobia within a white community within the Latinx community. But there's these rich traditions like the Mouche in uh, Mexico of, you know, these non-binary spiritual figures. But then at the same time, we have to be careful to not say like, so white therapists have a, a tendency to overplay the transphobia in other cultures, right? So it's like, we're enlightened, but y'all's culture is, and white therapists can even move as far as like, you should separate from your toxic family without recognizing people of color need community, right? And we cannot take people out of their support communities on one area and leave them with no support in other areas. And so it has to be integrated. It has to be intersectional. The work needs to be intersectional. Some of us need to separate from our families and some of us that is not the most supportive route. And so having a, a BIPOC perspective means we have to take all of that into account. Like if you, if I had a friend who is Latino and he, he, I wanted him to move to Seattle with me and he got there and he's like, I am the I'm the only Mexican person here, right? I was like, but you'll get education. It'll be so good for you. And he's like, it's not worth it. It's not worth it to my soul. So it's, you know, we have to balance all of those things. You mentioned a few things that I'm going to draw off of. So a lot of time, most of the times, parents usually tackle their own internalized fat phobia, internalized uh, queer phobia onto their child. It's really important not to make your child have the perfect body or this perfect thing. And if it doesn't look that way, then we need surgery or uh, who your child has sex with is not necessarily your issue. It's your child's issue. Of course, if they're young, it's your issue. But later on, it doesn't matter who we have sex with. And it does matter at the same time. So don't, don't have that notion where you're like okay my kid has to have sex with these kinds of people they have to have kids by this age and also with sex partners genitalia could be important and you can ask if you have sex with someone but if you don't you have no business in talking about anyone other anyone else's genitalia because it's not your issue it's not your thing to think about it's intimate and it's okay uh, during sex but otherwise just no yeah if you're trying to figure out the mechanics of who's a top and a bottom maybe it comes up otherwise i made the mistake though teaching and i really regret this but somebody was saying well how is caitlin trans i heard uh, she still has a dick. And I said, well, what's in your pants? And I was like, okay, I just ruined my life as a teacher. But what I wanted to point out was, of course, we wouldn't ask somebody that. That's extraordinarily outrageous. And I mm-hmm. it. I was like, this is the last class I'm going to teach because I just mm-hmm. asked, you know, what's in <laughs> What I wanted no. to highlight was, is, yeah, yeah, that very point, which is, that's not a question you get to ask. Yeah, I, th- I think that's a great point. I mean, I've brought up when when cis people have asked me about what is okay to ask about trans people having surgery or not, I say, well, would you ask your cis friend about their genitals? Right. The answer is pretty much always no, like I wouldn't. So why would you feel differently about trans people? I don't know. That's a weird line to draw there. But one thing I wanted to bring up just because I think it's 
important. I, I know we all know it, but I think it's important for our audience to hear again and again is this idea of regret that gets brought up and seems to be this thing that cis people especially are really attached to this idea that that trans people are going to regret transitioning or are going to regret surgeries. And I think that I don't know if a lot of cis people realize, but in my experience, at least a lot of the trans people I've talked to, and this is true for myself, do have one very specific regret, but it's not the regret says people think we do. I regret that I didn't transition a lot earlier. In my earlier, younger. Um, so I just think that's important to put out there that, yeah, trans people do feel regret. It's in almost all cases, not the regrets as people are worried we're going to feel. Yeah, well, and also the there's research that if you look at the real research that it's a tiny, tiny, tiny percentage and even that, that, that actually expresses the regret. And you've said, I know you've said, Jackie, like, let's really look at that percentage and what kind of social pressures and religious pressures and, you know, and family pressures. Like, I now know, you know, lots and lots of trans and non-binary, you know, and gender diverse, gender queer people. I've never heard anybody regretting being doing whatever they were called to do to be themselves. I, well, just, and if we want to start <laughs> regulating trans affirming surgeries on the basis of regret, we should regulate all surgeries on the basis of all surgeries, especially voluntary elective surgeries that a lot of people engage in on the basis of regret, because there's a lot of other procedures that would be outlawed before trans affirming surgeries if there were an objective standard taken there. So. I would love to speak to that personally if I could. So when I was uh, married, trying to be a heterosexual woman, my husband and I were trying to get pregnant and we were struggling with infertility. So I had to take estrogen. It was the most dysphoric time of my life. Absolutely. Not one person in my family said, are you worried about cancer? Are you worried about this is going to feminize you in a way that you don't want? Are you worried about the the non-reversal effects? They just went, oh, a baby, Right. And to me, it was like, it was a horrible time in my life. And then later on, and I'll, I'll just be straight up with you, when I was trying to be a female, I got breast implants. And because the doctor said, your, your uh, shoulders are too broad for a woman. So you need to have bigger breasts to compensate for your masculine shape. So I went to double D, which is not what I asked for, but he decided to compensate for that. Nobody, again, nobody said, do you regret that? you know, are you sure you want to do that? Are you sure you want to look more feminine? But the second I've decided to take testosterone, I got the, what about cancer? Which by the way, it is the one test that shows testosterone could lead to cancer. It's prostate cancer. It was a test done in cis men. So that is not a thing. That is a problem medically. I'm more likely to get cancer for my fertility treatments than my gender affirming care. And then, you know, yeah, now I have to get a letter to get these things out of me. I had no letter required to get these things in me. In fact, I didn't even have full informed consent because I didn't know what the doctor was going to do until it was done. So, yeah, it's a double standard we have about who's going to regret what. And nobody's worried about a nose job. What if you want your original nose back, right? Um, and if you want it back, you can get it back, honestly, right? I, I knew a girl in high school got a nose job at like 16, 17. No one made her... I mean, I don't know. I don't think the same level of scrutiny was applied to her that was applied to different trans procedures, especially at that age. Right. So I do regret what I thought was gender affirming care because because I thought I needed to be a better woman and then I'd be happy. And the lovely thing is I can take them back out. Thank God. And then this regret that Thank we uh, talk about. Usually it's because of circumstances. Usually it's because you have someone really 
conservative around you or religious and that religion per se promotes heterosexuality and shuns homosexuality. Those are the times usually people on this small percentage regret because they want to be loved and accepted by people who do not like their child's core self. So it's really important to know that even that small percentage of regret is usually because of other people, not by your internal thing. And yes, there are a few people in the world that have regretted. That is not because of circumstances, but not there's not enough research even to back that up. There's not enough research to back up the regrets that were not based on circumstances. So that's really important. Another point that I wanted to bring up is that the attack and the homophobia, transphobia, non-binary phobia that we get are usually from people we know, are usually from family, sometimes not close family, but you'll have that uncle that jokes about your genitals. You'll have that and that is like, okay, you should not, like, it's okay that you're gay. It's okay that you're queer and non-binary. Just don't be too much around this plate, you know, like around this dinner that we have with the family. Just don't be that way. Personally, I got attacked by an uncle and shunned me for just presenting myself in social media and just being myself. That, that led to a huge fight. And honestly, since I came out a couple of times, I did let most of my family go because I saw that I I was getting depressed and sad because that family would never accept me. So I moved out of that space and since then I'm I'm happy. And of course I have my lovely family that I talk to, but not most of them because they don't like my core stuff. They don't like that I'm queer and that's okay. And it's sometimes harder with bike bike communities because there's a different relationship and traditions. And if you're getting out of that, that can be so hard for that child that they, they might choose not to get out of that system, just take part in that system and then later commit suicide. I know it's dramatic what I just said, but Trans and non-binary suicides are are a thing that we don't talk about. And it's an issue everywhere in the world, even in countries where they say that there are no queer people in them, because every country has queer people in them. So if you have that hate in you, maybe separate from, like, maybe don't tackle your own, I don't know, brother or my uncle like attacking me like why not just separate yourself from me just don't be around my life and don't be toxic but I had to share my own views and my own hurts because mostly the people that attack you are the people you know and that's what I wanted to highlight with this you might be able to tell from both of our stories that the reason why we're affirmative therapists is because of our own lived experience, right? And we could talk theory if you want. We can talk therapy. But the biggest motivator was we want to be the people we needed. We went into this field to be the support that, boy, if we would have met one of us when we were a different age, our lives could have been really different. So you know that one is like, be the adult you needed when you were a kid. And this is this is why we've gone into this field is um, not to help 
So here's a trigger if you're looking for a therapist for your kid. When you hear someone say, oh, I love working with that population. Uh-uh. <laughs> it just feels to be the wrong way. We are that, you know, so I'm not saying you have to have lived experience to get it. You don't. You can have tremendous compassion and empathy and, and do the work and do the research. But those of us who have lived experience are driven a little bit stronger by the the statistics are important, but also it's the we really want to make the world a better place for our clients, for our parents and for the people we don't know as well because it's safer for me if we do. So I had a friend from the middle Midwest ask me, she goes, can I ask you questions about being trans? Because all the trans people I know are unstable, mentally unstable. And there was a presumption that trans people are mentally ill. And the research shows that mental illness in trans people is the same rate as any other population unless they are not supported. So if if there's no support, yeah, we get kind of weird, right? If society hates us, yeah, we develop paranoia and phobias and PTSD and all of these things. But there's nothing inherently mentally ill about trans people at all. And the most beautiful statistic in the world, and I think John Stewart brought it up in his program, is that trans people who are supported by family and other loving adults um, have the same outcomes and potentials as as everybody. Rebecca, thank you for sharing that. Oh, sorry. You go ahead, Jackie. I'll, I'll. I I was just going to say, I don't, I don't talk about my work a lot on this podcast for a variety of reasons. The one thing I will say is that I deal a lot with trying to connect people who are living on the street in San Francisco to services. It's one of the things I, I end up doing. It's not the primary responsibility of my job, but it's a thing I get involved in. And Seeing how, I mean, see, like I, I find I learn about these people in the process of trying to connect them with services and hearing about from, you know, housed people who are witnessing their behavior and witnessing them deteriorate on our streets. And so many of them are trans and queer. And they came to San Francisco because did not have support networks in, in the places that they were from. And we try our best to support them here, but it's really hard. We honestly don't have the resources that we need to do it right. And I just, I think it's worth saying that every one of those people who's living on the streets in San Francisco right now, who's queer, who's trans, is there because of their transphobic and unsupportive families and their support networks who who basically failed them. And that's, that's a hard thing to to deal with, but it's, it's very real. And I see that every day. So it's a high percentage. It's a high percentage that just moved to California. I have some clients as well who I moved to California for the same reasons to be myself. And unfortunately there is homeless population everywhere uh, here down in LA as well. It's, it's really heartbreaking, but most of these queer kids try to run to their life, not, to have a life. And unfortunately for some people, it's better to be on the street with some queer friends than be with, be at home and be punished and beaten up and all that nasty things that people can do. Yes. I, I don't know that this is therapy related, but um, recently I've been involved in some films about queer representation and it's not trans representation yet. And someone asked me, what's your favorite trans representation, right? And for me, the way Umbrella Academy handled Elliot Page's coming out, I thought was beautiful. I was like, oh my God, I wish, like, can you imagine? They're just like, oh, cool. Okay. Welcome, brother. The end. 
But growing up, and the panelists on John Stewart show said the same thing, and it was true for me. Brandon Tina's story was my first trans male representation, and I loved that movie. For three quarters of the movie, Boys Don't Cry, and I was like, oh, and I was watching him, you know, have sex, and and I was so taken with it. And then he's he's raped and murdered. So we have a, a kill your gays trope, we have a kill your trans trope, and if we don't have representation of successful, healthy, happy adults living trans lives. It's super dangerous for kids. And so I wanted to see more. I have trans and non-binary clients who are out and happy and it's the least, we don't even talk about that. It's not even what we talk about. We talk about work stress, relationship stress, you know, other things. It's just something that is true about them like anything else. And then we do, we do, uh, we talk about other things. So once that's supported, this stops being a mental health issue. And it just becomes like, a, you know, I have this hair color, this skin color, I'm trans. You mentioned something important with exposure and like with queer affirming therapy, one important thing is to be exposed to queerness itself, uh, whether it's uh, some TV shows or like really good singers. Villano Antiano is my favorite. I just had to say it and just like really see yourself and see yourself successful, the exposure that's really important. And it's a double-edged sword because this exposure is different because when we see someone that's trans or non-binary in TV, uh, there are tropes. There are tropes that you have to be, yeah, flamboyant when you're gay and talk like this. It's just making fun of queer people. It's actually traumatizing and harmful for the community. And I would like to see more people of color who are trans and non-binary in TV and media everywhere. Black trans life matter, as you know. There's a lot of violent murders in this country that is really heartbreaking. And we cannot say it enough that Black trans women matter. And... Just look out for your queer community around you. Just be one of those people that listens, that that is there for us and not necessarily just have the exposure where you see someone really built, really the perfect person for Hollywood, but that's maybe not who you are. And then there's more fat phobia, there's more internalized shame. Oh, that's how I should be as a queer person. That's why I took a pause from the industry because I'm an actor also, but I felt that toxicity where, okay, I can be gay if I'm that one certain gay, or I can be trans, but not non-binary. Even if you're trans, this is a huge issue. People think that we owe them androgyny. We owe them being a man and a woman, but and that's, that's of course, important and amazing. But if you're not that, if you're non-binary, please affirm that too. If your child is non-binary and trans, like, look at both sides, please. Not just, okay, my child is trans and, okay, well, they were born with a penis. Okay, now they're going to be a girl. Listen to your child. They're going to tell you. They're going to give hints, even if they can't tell you. Look, mommy, I like that t-shirt. Can we buy it? And you're like, of course, and not look at it and be like, well, that looks too ugly for you or that, well, you should show off that you're skinny or, or you should lose some weight. So even when we're affirmed, it's important to listen to your kid and not have the media 
shun you for who you are if you're not in that box that is presented. That's a good one on on non-binary. One of the reasons I still use they, them pronouns, even though I'm pretty clearly trans-masculine, trans-man, and I love it. Like the second I started doing testosterone, it felt like the easiest thing I'd ever done in my life. And I was like, oh my God. And then I'm like a teenager. It's not fully in. It's a little scraggly. But every day I look, I'm like, oh, look, this is great. But I use they, them because I don't want to move from one really constrictive box to another really constrictive box, right? It's like, am I a trans man? Yes, absolutely. If you say he, you're not wrong. But, you know, my family wanted to jump in and be like, now that you're a man, you need to do X, Y, Z. And I was like, oh my God, no, I'm not moving from one box to another box. Just let me be. And so, yeah, if your your kid is binary trans, don't put expectations on what that looks like. And if they're non-binary trans, that means there's literally no pattern of what they are. So they could say that and say, well, you still look the same as you did before. Yep. But um, but their identity is is what it is. So Yeah. Yeah. Speaking to the, you know, expectations in the culture and parents and and the media specifically, I did, we do like to talk about what's happening out in the world and what people are seeing. So I, we've referenced the John Stewart show. I just wanted, I wanted to bring this up on this episode, whether it came up or not naturally in the conversation, but John Stewart, I wasn't really that aware of his show before this. I mean, I'm a little bit aware of him, but his show is called the problem with John Stewart. He did an episode called the war over gender. It's getting a lot of attention. I encourage everyone to watch it. Everyone's analyzing it. There are problematic aspects of it. There are really affirming aspects of it. The crew there, the team there clearly did a lot of research and a lot of work. There was a lot that went into it and he tried to, you know, kind of apologize for past transphobia and so on. I do want to encourage everybody to watch it. You can have your own opinion about it, but I think it's worth watching and we are definitely going to put the link. It's on Apple TV and you can watch it for free on Apple TV and we're going to put the link in the show notes and the YouTube description. He did try to have some representation. He had two parents, one a white mom, one a black mom, and he had an endocrinologist and he had Chase Strangio who is the, I want to get it right because Chase is doing such amazing work, Deputy Director for Transgender Justice with the ACLU. And he is just a, such an amazing human being, the work that he's doing, dedicating his whole life to this and fighting all of the the massive amount of legislation, anti-trans legislation right now. So I'm so thankful to him and to, you know, I am thankful to Jon Stewart. You know, one of the things I was so happy to see it just because I talk to a lot of people who aren't really willing. I can give you stacks of books and articles and research and Sorry, but the average person just isn't willing to look at any of it. It's really sad. Even the parents whose kids come out, I'm like, you've got to read, you know, your transgender child. You've got to read all these books. And some of them just, they're not going to do it. So I think everybody watches TV, you know, unfortunately, you know, this might be the one piece that people are willing to take in and they're going to get a lot from it. It is going to give you some really important research and gender affirming information. It's problematic in other ways for sure, which... I won't get into because we could probably talk for hours and hours, but, you know, I would have liked more explanation. There's kind of a, like this vague, generic, like assumption that we all understand, like, oh, just support your kids. You know, I would support my kid. It's like, but no, let's talk about what everything we've just talked about, all the various kinds of things they might be going through. It's not like this simple process that you, you know, just support your kid. There's so much to it. But um we encourage everybody listening right now, please, please watch that show. 
please watch that show. And if there's anybody in your life who is not completely trans affirming, who has a trans person in their life that they may influence or affect in some way, please, please urge them to watch this, especially if they're not willing to read the many very credible pieces of writing out there. This is something you can watch. So does anybody want to comment on that episode or that topic? (laughs) Great episode. Go ahead, Rebecca. I was just going to say, so I have a friend who's a big gay male rights activist, Dustin Lance Black. He won the Oscar for writing Milk. There's a documentary about his life coming out on HBO um, because he was raised Mormon. That's coming out next Tuesday. But I saw him last week and he told me the story. He goes, here's the thing. When he was fighting for marriage equality, that's adults. And marriage equality is pretty conservative. He said, the thing about trans is there's kids and people get hysterical when that comes up with kids and sexuality of any kind and gender. And he was like, what's the story we're not hearing? And it was the thing that John Stewart was saying, which is if kids are supported with gender affirming care, their outcomes are amazing. That's the story we're not hearing. And that is at least the story he brought in. You know, of course, I would have liked to hear other things like, you know, he kept saying there's mental health health problems if you wait till they're 18 but there's also physical ones as soon as you go through puberty of any gender there are non-reversible effects of puberty so if a kid can go through their correct puberty be you know if they know they're trans and they can go through that puberty they're going to have a very different body and life than if they wait until after i wish he would have said that but i appreciate at least he brought in the mental health and the fact that this is research. We're not experimenting. This is people know what's happening. People know what we're doing. And yeah, so I'm appreciating that and love to hear any of that representation. And saying that, like, I wish there was a little bit more exposure on the BIPOC community and the experiences of that. And Exposure is so important. So seeing a John Stewart episode or seeing actual trans people flourish and follow them on Instagram, follow them on Facebook. Even if you don't see anyone around you in your family, start following the people you would like to hang out with. It will give you joy. And then for parents, just know that your child is unique and your child doesn't have to be following the system your child can be unique and beautiful and we can celebrate that uniqueness because we're all unique and we should all be celebrated for who we are i have to say because i'm i'm trans mask before i knew it i had such crushes on trans men whenever i saw them so like and now i know why right it's like it's i want i love them i want to be them i am them i want to be with them so anytime i see a trans man in public i'm like oh so seeing uh, seeing Chase on that panel was very, made my heart flutter a bit. <laughs> yeah, I get excited anytime. Like if I make oh, yeah. something public, I'm like, oh, oh, it's very exciting to me because it is. We're probably one of trans men and women are probably the least represented population of any, and so just seeing people like us, you know, is very exciting. There are a whole lot of, I don't know, supposedly identifying as cis hetero women who are very attracted to trans men. Well, I think there's a fine line between. (laughs) Myself included. I did did the same thing where I was like, do I want to be with you? Do I want to be you? Both. There's a fine line there. There's overlapping categories. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's okay if your child comes out once and then it changes. Sometimes hormones change things. Sometimes we grow up and and we change and 
who we were attracted to before, it might not be the same person that we're attracted to now. So like, don't have expectations that your kid will be a certain way, even after they transition, because mm-hmm. it will change. Mm-hmm. So again, as a parent, you're also transitioning with your child. Don't take it out on them. Go to therapy, please. Yeah. And I think a lot of parents probably are also confronted with their own sexuality and gender identity. Because as we know, you know, the people who don't agree with everything we're saying are saying, what's with all these kids? These kids are all coming out as trans and gay and, and non-binary. And it's like, well, if, if we lived in the world we live now, we might have too. You know, so we're, we're confronted, you know, I'm in my fifties and I didn't know any of this. Nobody talked about any of this. So I don't know, you know, I don't know what I, my peers, you know, people who I now see and we have in our community and our Facebook group and, you know, Jackie, we just got an email from a woman who said, I think she was in her sixties and came out two years ago and wanted to, to thank us for the podcast. And, you know, so it's like, who knows what the real numbers are and the real, and, and how much are people really truly in the closet even with themselves, you know, we, we have no idea. But to me, I think, I think it's a very different world than we think it is in terms of the true range of unique experiences with gender identification, expression, sexual orientation. And so let's be open to that because that's, that's the reality. And it's only going, you know, it's only opening up more and more. So it's like the train has left the station. Are you coming? Or are you going to really try to, you know, hang on and say, no, we're going, but let's go back. It's crazy. It's not happening. And, and it didn't start like a year ago or two. This started thousands of years ago, millions. Like mm-hmm. since humanity has existed, there has been queer people, non-binary people, mm-hmm. trans people. Mm-hmm. We just talked about it differently. It was different or it's hidden history. But through our program, we learned that there were so many queer people in our history. It's just they're not getting credit because we are profiting off of heterosexism, of hate. That we're profiting off of capitalism. This is what everyone is going for, not pro-life. Because if you're pro-life, then you're pro-trans life. You're pro, I'm going to yep. adopt kids' life, not be pro-life, and then just dismiss other people. And this is like a harsh debate in our community right now, but I agree with this, that if you're having a child, like, think about your own hatred before you have a child. Think of if they're going to be trans, if they're going to have, if they're going to date someone from a different culture, it's okay. It's normal. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We brought up the uncomfortable question of sexuality with trans. So I grew up knowing I was queer, but I couldn't figure out how, because I kept being attracted to men. Mm -hmm. I was like, I know I'm queer, but I look like I'm a girl who likes boys. And then I knew I was bisexual and being bisexual in the nineties, not fun. So mm-hmm. I called, I came out as a lesbian. I'm like, that's it. I'm going to be a lesbian. And then I liked a boy and they kicked me out. <laughs> like almost did, like it was a literal, like a tribunal. Mm-hmm. I was kicked mm-hmm. out. And so I didn't know where I fit. And now that I'm trans, I'm taking testosterone. I won't tell you all of the details, but my sexuality is weird on testosterone. <laughs> like I'm attracted to things I was never attracted to before. So it's like now my sexuality has to be redefined. And the lovely thing about the word queer, and I think it's why Abba uh, keeps using it too, is 
I love this this mushy pile, right? When we get really careful into these categories, we're going to miss the beauty and the diversity of human experience, right? So mm-hmm. I'm bi and trans and non-binary and a little bit on the asexual scale. And, you know, I've had uh, testosterone problems my whole life. So I guess I'm a tiny bit intersex on that level. Mm-hmm. So instead of having these categories, just like this beautiful queer umbrella of human mm-hmm. diversity, there's so mm-hmm. many possibilities in there. And some people are binary and some mm-hmm. people are not, right? Mm-hmm. The mm-hmm. sexuality comes with gender and everything else. Mm-hmm. And cool. I'm yep. one of the, the more the merrier. Let's make this rainbow with a thousand colors instead of eight, yep. you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I think that's probably a good note for us to start bringing things to a close. I could talk to you, all of you, forever. Jackie, just yeah, let me know. She so has a work thing. Taking <laughs> the time. I, I really appreciate this was such a great conversation. So thank you, Rebecca. We are, yeah, we're so, so grateful. Thank you so Can much I- for having this conversation. And I really want people to look you up, uh, listeners who are really enjoying what we're talking about. I think there are going to be a lot of listeners who really appreciate this conversation. We have not had a conversation like this before. It's very important and special and unique. Please go to the website for uh, Rebecca and Abba's practice and check out more about their work. Reach out to them. There is a great need for mental health support that they are providing that is we hope we've made clear is not widely available is becoming more available hopefully but right now there's a deficit of therapists who really understand and have the lived experience and have the training and the kind of education that you've had so we really want people to reach out to you for support whether they be uh, lgbtqia plus themselves, whether their family members need support, community members, education is needed. I know you both are involved in doing training yourself for therapists and for all people involved in this journey. And so we really want people to reach out to you. Any final thoughts from both of you? Yes, I have one last thing. So if you're abused at home and you have no one around you, just know that I love you. I care about you. And you can make it through. It's going to be okay. And if you feel like you need some support and you need some pro bono support because you're a child, reach out to me and we can talk. Okay. I just want it to be a resource, a resource. I love you. I really love you. All of you queer people. I love you. And for the parents, I imagine there's, I had a lot of fear when I was going to be trans because I thought trans people are freaks. Trans people don't get jobs. If I come out as trans, I will be kicked out of society. And I just want the parents to know, since I've transitioned, I've never been happier or more successful. I have a PhD. I have a master's degree in clinical psychology. I have multiple careers. I walk with joy and my head held high and I've never lived a better life than this. So if you're afraid for your child's future, the happy future is living their real self. So Uh, both of you, I'm kind of speechless and very emotional based on what you both said. And I just want to thank you for that and bringing your full selves and hearts to this conversation and to our audience. And I want to say to our audience, I, we love you too deeply. And we come back every month to try to bring more so that you feel loved and supported and heard and seen. And if whatever we can do to do more of that, please let us know. You all know where to find us. Some of you do write to us and we thank you so much for that. So we are all here 
for you <laughs> for in whatever ways we can be. Thank you, Abba and Rebecca. This was even way off the charts better than I even expected. And I knew it was going to be amazing. So I cannot begin to thank you enough. I'm overcome with emotion, gratitude, and and hope, just hope for, especially for young people. Jackie, final thoughts. I know. And to your point, though, I feel the same way about Jackie. Like I had all these worries about Jackie and Jackie's life is just amazing. And that's why she has to run because she is so successful in her career that she can't get away from it. She's working all the time because she's so doing so well, succeeding so well in life, being her her true self and living her authentic life. So a final thought, Jackie. <laughs> yeah. Thank you both so much for being here. I think this was a great conversation and please check out their website, everyone. Bye everybody. Thank you so much for listening to our Transgender School podcast. We hope you learned something new and that you're inspired to learn more. If you enjoyed our conversation, please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. And please be sure to check out our website, transgenderschool.org. You'll find many valuable resources there, including news about upcoming courses we'll be teaching. Make sure to join us for future podcast episodes. We'll catch you on the first Tuesday of every month. 